Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Scholl, and really, I'm here just to talk about Sayers and the things that pertain to Sayers. So who is Sayers? Well, Dorothy L. Sayers was a popular British writer in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. She wrote murder mystery. She wrote drama. She wrote theology. She wrote about women's roles. She wrote about Dante Alighieri. She translated Dante Alighieri. You name it, she probably said something about it. Why Sayers? Well, if you are interested in women's issues, you might want to read her Are Women Human, which is a compelling little pamphlet. She was also one of the first female celebrity in her days, first female celebrities in her day to wear trousers. Do you like intellectual things, but you're not a Christian? She takes you back to the creeds of Christendom. There's plenty to argue with, plenty to talk about, but also she has quite a bit to say about the nature of art, artistic integrity, the integrity of the work. So there's plenty there, especially if you're an artist, if you're a plumber. She even talks about plumbing, although that's mostly in her letters, and she probably doesn't have much to say about the technical side of your job. So she's not every woman's woman, but given the length and quality of her career, it would be strange if she didn't have something to offer most people, men or women. Uh, also, uh, as I start this episode, I want to say thank you to my students whose audio equipment I'm borrowing, though they don't know it. So thanks to the microphone, guys. I promise I'll put it back. So today's episode, episode one, The Letters of Dorothy L. Sayers. Okay, so as we talk about our letters, we're going to talk about a specific letter exchange, but also I want to give you a little bit of um, introduction to kind of her letters in general. Lewis, with whom she exchanged several letters, called her one of the great English letter writers. Her letters are pretty accessible. You can find them uh, in four different volumes. The first two volumes were published by St. Martin's Press. The last two were published by the Dorothy L. Sayers Society. Now, the first two, the St. Martin's Press ones, those cover her early life. And I'll give you their titles, 1899. Wait, no, that's not it. There we go. The Letters of Dorothy L. Sayers, 1899 to 1936, The Making of a Detective Novelist. Um, And then uh, with a preface actually by P.D. James, if you're into that uh, author, detective fiction author. Second volume, volume two, 1937 to 1943, From Novelist to Playwright. And then we go into her third volume, which is what I'll be drawing from today. The Letters of Dorothy L. Sayers, 1944 to 1950, A Noble Daring. And then finally, uh, towards the end of her life, Letters of Dorothy L. Sayers, volume four. I think I said the last volume was volume three, that Noble Daring one. And then 1951 to 1957, In the Midst of Life. Now, all of these are translated by one of her friends later in life, a lady named Barbara Reynolds, who is also a Dante scholar. And so it has kind of Barbara Reynolds' footnotes in there. And Reynolds is pretty qualified to talk about these things because she knows where Sayers is coming from when it comes to the Dante scholarship. And she knew Sayers herself. So Sayers wrote letters to a variety of people, starting with her friends and parents uh, when she was younger, and then to her various editors and publishers and producers when she was uh, getting more established in her career. And then, of course, to her literary friends, such as C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams even a few letters to T.S. Eliot. Some of her most remarkable letters are actually to various clergymen who have written her and asked her to give various speeches on religious topics. And that's actually going to touch on what we're discussing today, what a person should be talking about. Even when asked politely if, you know, if there's something that they shouldn't be talking about or not, even though it might be a good topic, 
they may not be the ones to say anything about it. Okay, a couple other business notes. She does not translate her references in her letter. So I'll do my best to translate for you if it's unclear. And by references, I mean she'll have like a little uh, Latin phrase or Greek phrase or something like that. And I'm just going to go ahead and translate those. And I'll comment on it if it seems worthwhile. And uh, by the way, translation will probably be from Barbara Reynolds in the footnotes. And also, these are her letters. The volumes that I'm dealing with are the Sayers collection, collected edition uh, editions. And so they don't have the full text of any layer, any letters that she was writing, other people she was writing to. So when we get to Lewis, we're going to be quoting Lewis, but these are excerpts from the entire letter. I wish I had the entire letter. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I don't have it. So I'll give you what I have. Okay, so let's get started. Lewis had asked Sayers to write a, um, a little something for a book that he was working on. And I've got the note right here. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba, hang on. Okay, so he had invited her to contribute to a series of short booklets, which would be a, quote, sort of library of Christian knowledge for young people in top forms at school. And she had some hesitation about whether or not she should do this. And when she expressed that hesitation, knowing Sayers probably... She didn't sound very hesitant when she expressed her when she expressed her doubts, uh, but she did say that her conscience prevented her from writing for the purpose of edifying readers. And C.S. Lewis responds with a challenge and telling her that her artistic conscience is standing in the way of her duty. And the following reply is how she um, is how she responded to C.S. Lewis, thirty first of July, nineteen forty six. Dear Mister Lewis. Oi, oi, I see it. Yes, she actually wrote out oi and oi, like O-Y with exclamation point. Okay, anyway, oi, oi, I see I must willy-nilly write you another letter. Don't let the devil get away with insinuating that only my artistic conscience prevents me from writing this, that, and the other to edification. How he does love to be sure putting asunder what God has joined. Conscience is conscience, but if you dig out a bit of it and slip in the word artistic in front of it, he can make it sound something different and quite innocuous. All the same, a lie is a lie, and he knows it. Once you start, for any reason whatsoever, writing something in which the will does not assent to the undertaking, you are beginning to tell lies. She goes on. I have always realized that you are bothered about this business of art and edification, but I think you are making it too complicated. Unless you take up Tertullian's position, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And Tertullian, by the way, you probably already know this, but Tertullian... Uh, wrote this famous um, argument that said, you know, Athens, which is like secular, pagan, Greek, and Jerusalem, sacred, uh, divine, biblical, that they shouldn't have a whole lot of conversation with each other, that the Jerusalem people should focus using, you know, really only biblical texts, really only Christian texts. They shouldn't be stealing good pagan ideas. Anyway, we go back to Sayers. Unless you take up Tertullian's position, if you admit, which Lewis definitely didn't, if you admit at all that gifts and talents have any sanctity in themselves, this is badly put. I mean, if you think God manifests himself in the natural order at all, that a body is to be honored for being a body, or a job for being a job, or an intellect for being an intellect, you have to deal honestly with them and respect their proper truth. I don't believe God is such a twister as you make out. I don't believe he implants a love of good workmanship merely as a trap for one to walk into. Of course, one can make an idol of good workmanship as of anything else. I don't know what will happen at the moment of death, but I don't somehow fancy showing up a lot of stuff to the carpenter's son and saying, 
Well, I admit that the wood was green and the joints untrue and the glue bad, but it was all church furniture. Okay, so she um, she's uh, kind of addressing there that the uh, you call something sanct you know you call something sacred because it edifies others, but the damage is that you may not be the right person to speak on that particular topic. And she goes on, and this is really her argument. I think this is a good thesis, several good thesis points here, but her, her main argument for this particular letter is you must not accept money, quote, you must not accept money, you must not accept applause, you must not accept a following, you must not accept even the assurance that, what, that you are doing good as an excuse for writing anything but the thing you want to say. Now listen closely to what she's saying and what she's not saying. You must not accept money. You must not accept applause. You must not accept a following. You must not accept even the assurance that you are doing good as an excuse for writing anything or the thing you want to say. She's not saying you can't accept money. She's not saying you can't accept applause. But she is saying that what you say had better be what you are saying and not just at the behest of somebody else. You know, she goes on to talk about how you don't want to retreat into the ivory tower. She's not saying that. But also what you don't want to do is because you think an idea is good and should be said that you look down kind of from a tower and say, ah, those common people need this truth and I shall deliver it to them. That's not what you want. Instead, if you've got a truth to share, you better be running out into the streets saying, look here, look here. And this is Sayers. Look what I found. Come and have a bit of it. It's grand. You'll love it. I can't keep it to myself. And anyhow, I want you to know, I want to know what you think of it. And then it's great. Then it's fantastic. And then uh, you, you just, you can't make that up because you have felt the truth. Um, now, she knows that there are times when you really need to pay the bills. And definitely she paid the bills with her own writing. And she says this, there are times when, you know, you've got to have something. And so you come up with uh, an ersatz miracle. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, it's a German for substitute. Um, kind of the substitute miracle that is problematic, but you really just kind of get it done. And she says, there is a, there's a lie in that. And she goes on to talk about the nature of religious art sometimes. Um, take shoddy, weak, sentimental religious art. There are pious souls who get comfort out of bad stained glass and sloppy hymns and music, though they might well have gotten better nourishment out of honest stuff. But thousands of others have spewed at the sight and sound of it and said, if Christianity fosters that kind of thing, it must have a lie in its soul. No. You can't divide the conscience into artistic and the other sort. It's all one. And you can't serve God with lies. Whether the lie is in the intention or in the workmanship is no odds. It will eat its way right through in the end. Now she goes on and uh, has a few more things. I'm not going to read them here. But the kind of the crux of this letter is, can a piece of art have a lie in it? And if so, what type of lie could it be? And what, what problems does it cause? Now she's answering clearly. Absolutely. Emphatically, yes. Absolutely, a piece of art can have a lie in it. And that lie can um, lie in the motivation of the, of the artist. But it's not just really that. It's not just about intention. It's about knowing something and being able to share that something. As opposed to what she thinks Lewis is asking her to do is sharing something that she doesn't have. Okay, so Lewis replied... I don't think the difference comes between us where you think. Of course, one mustn't do dishonest work. But you seem to take as a criterion of honest work the sensible desire to write, the itch. That seems to me precious like making being in love the only reason for going on with the marriage. 
In my experience, the desire has no constant ratio to the value of the work done. By the way, I really like that. Um, anything, anytime you put ratio in a quote, it sounds good. Um, okay, yeah, sorry, we'll move on, we'll move on. My own frequent uneasiness comes from another source. The fact that apologetic work is so dangerous to one's own faith. A doctrine never seems dimmer to me than when I have just successfully defended it. Anyway, thanks for an intensely interesting letter. That's a polite way to say I'm done talking about this, I think. But Sayers doesn't stop. She responds to C.S. Lewis, 5th of August, 1946. Dear Mr. Lewis, to clear up the misapprehension in your last letter would take a small treatise. However, the chief point is that I do not possess anything which I should care to dignify by the name of my faith. Now, that's interesting. And Sayers writes elsewhere and very publicly about the nature of creeds. And the creeds of Christendom, I'm saying, take, talking like the Nicene Creed, the um, Creed of Chalcedon, the creeds that the you know, all three major denominations of the church have accepted Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox. She put, places great emphasis on those in other works. Okay, she goes on. All spiritual experience is a closed book to me. In that respect, I have been tone deaf from birth. All the apparatus I have by which to apprehend anything at all is intellect and imagination. Or rather, since apart they can do nothing, the imaginative intellect. If or when, from time to time, God is pleased to make any truth clear to me by that means, I can announce it to the best of my ability in what I have to call, for lack of a better name, a work of the creative imagination. But if, for any reason, I write anything that is not fully apprehended by those means, I produce work that not only is spurious in itself, but also falsifies the only instruments I have by which to perceive anything. That is why I'm obliged to resent and resist this religious racket which is continuously forcing me into false situations, urging me to write on subjects which I cannot honestly handle or distorting what I do say in a manner which makes me appear to lay claim to more faith and spirituality than I have. Um, so a couple of key phrases in, there, in that passage. Uh, note that she takes this opportunity to talk about not just what she can't do, but what she can do. And what God has given her access to is this use of the imaginative intellect or the creative imagination. We're going to kind of stick with imaginative, imaginative intellect because um, Barbara Reynolds wrote a whole book on Sayers about Sayers' interest in Dante. And the title is, I'm turning around and look at it right now, The Passionate Intellect, which is pretty close, close to the imaginative intellect. Anyway, the point is that this kind of idea is pretty key for Sayers, that the use of the mind and logic combined with imagination, is for her one of the chief ways to understand God, not personal experience, not emotion. She's not saying those things are illegitimate for others, but for her, that um, that's, not how she, that's not how she operates. And for that reason, she can't speak that much about emotional experiences or definitely mystical experiences, which is also fascinating because one of her great literary loves in life was Dante. And if you know anything about Dante and you've read the Divine Comedy, you could argue that that's a pretty mystical experience. In fact, uh, it's so vivid that some scholars have said that Dante resorted to drugs. I don't think that's necessary at all. But um, Dante definitely, he's, he's like, Dante is great. He's, he's just great. Like he's an intellectual mystic guy. And another one of her uh, great uh, one of her great appreciations in life was the work of Charles Williams, who was a contemporary of Sayers and a, and a friend. Um, and Williams himself was also pretty mystical to the point that many people were kind of uncomfortable with it. But she herself 
lays no claim to mysticism. In fact, she says her only mystical experience, and by that I mean like tangible, tangible feeling of divine things, her only mystical experience is her knowledge of her own sins. Okay, so definitely she does not feel qualified to talk about um, the religious life as such because, uh, because of these reasons. Let's go on. So I'm skipping a big old paragraph here, um, but I do want to say she, um, she and Lewis got along pretty well. Uh, she did not like his, uh, whenever he talked about gender or uh, the roles of sex and relationship or something, she really didn't like it. And we're not talking about her personal life. We're not going to go into like her marriage or his marriage or any of that stuff. Um, but they definitely had two different ways of approaching that topic. And she says this about his, remember he had had this analogy about uh, marriage, making being in love is the only reason for going on with a marriage. In my experience, the desire has no constant ratio to the valuable work done. Anyway, she says this, I, ha I do not care much for these sexual analogies of yours. I should prefer to say that one has to have the good news before one can preach it. But if you must have the thing in terms of love and marriage, then the position is that having deliberately thrown the girl at my head and done your best to compromise us, you are now trying to force us into marriage to please the county, regardless of the fact that she makes my flesh creep and that I have been engaged for years to another woman. Anyway, just it's kind of funny. Um, she concludes the letter with uh, talking about referencing this uh, a conversation she had had with Charles Williams, where she said, I never know whether I'm really sold on this thing, Christianity, or have merely fallen in love with the pattern. And she goes back to this idea of what her, uh, what her own, she would not use the phrase faith journey, uh, nothing like that. Um, but she does use the word love. She says that the only kind of love I understand at all is a kind that you put the lowest, the love of the artist for the artifact. That means that all my value seems to you to be very low grade. That may be quite true, but the fact remains that there are, they are the only ones I can use with any sort of honesty or meaning. I could write, of course, as an, admiral, an admirable exposition of the importance of personal relationships. I mean, I could. I wouldn't, but I could. But the fact remains that our father would only suggest to me the mildest of mild affections, whereas our maker really is a lord of terrible aspect. Nobody needs to tell me why God should want to make a thing, or why he should want to make it with an independent will. That's what we all like to be able to do. Or why he should be distressed when it went wrong or wallop it savagely back into shape or why the only means of getting it in, con in contact with it would be to make himself part of his own fiction. I know all that from inside, so to speak. What on earth is all this leading up to? Oh, yes, I know. That for me, falsity in what you call the artistic values is a central falsity, a betrayal so frightful that it wrenches everything else out of true. Okay. She goes on talking about how she should be working on Dante, but she's writing this letter to him. Lewis, <laughs> Lewis is getting, I would love to see the entirety of this letter because they're getting, they're getting kind of testy here. Lewis replied, hey, whoa, you write as if I've been urging you to do a book. Surely I was careful not to. The only difference is that I see nothing but doubts, whereas all looks self-evident to you. That may well be because you're a real writer and I'm only half-timer. Also, because I thought of a work which would be very definitely applied art. But don't bother your head about my views or doubts anymore. And this is the last letter we're going to deal with from Sayers today. To C.S. Lewis, 8th of August, 1946. Dear Mr. Lewis, I apologize for having gotten so hot. Indeed, you do not urge me to write your book, and I fully appreciate your moderation. But you did, in the most delicate and gentlemanly way possible, breathe a faint flavor of the pit upon artistic conscience. 
and so roused up in me something fierce and fundamental. But in fact, in your prophetic moments, you are with me. That is, if the corrupt artist in the great divorce is in hell because he is a corrupt artist. He has turned from serving the work and making the work serve him, and no longer paints because he is summoned to express and communicate, but for some other reason. And I don't think it matters very much what or how specious, species, species, how do you pronounce that word? S-P-E-C-I-O-U-S, species? The other reason is. Um, so she she kind of it goes back to this issue of artistic integrity a little bit more, but then she addresses something that he had said in an earlier letter when he said that he never felt so uncertain about a doctrine as when he had just finished defending it. Um, it never seemed dimmer to him. And she gives him some advice on this. She kind of uh, addresses him where he is. And it's kind of interesting to think of somebody giving C.S. Lewis advice. Had to happen. I mean, he's, he's, he's immortal like us. But um, yeah, okay. So let me, let me get actually to his, her advice. Meanwhile, you say that a doctrine never seems dimmer to you than when you have just been defending it. Well, naturally. But I doubt if that has anything much to do with or against your faith. It is a nemesis that attends all art and all argument. And then she gives him three points. One, it is dimmer, and in one sense always will be, because you have put something of yourself into it, and, Pache Browning, you can't completely remove the alloy from the gold. This being a fallen world, the incarnate image never perfectly reflects the idea, and you will never again be able to see the thing quite without the contributed distortion. But it would be exactly the same as if you were writing about Shakespeare or a piece of landscape. You have withied a withy that shall never be unwithied in this life. Stop there. By the way, there was a, there was a Browning reference earlier, um, which I don't I don't I didn't track down. Um, but also this quote: "Withy to withy that shall never be unwithied." Say that with me: "Withy to withy that shall never be unwithied." So much fun. That actually comes from Dante from um, Paradiso. Obviously, that's um. I mean, that's an English translation. I don't think the Italians have a word withy, but it could be wrong. Dante says that uh, midway midway came potency with act and twisted by withy that shall ne'er ne'er unwithied be. And that has to do with like creativity and the angels and the stars and, and the philosophical concept of potencies versus action. And, um, you know, angels are, uh, let's see, what is it? the note, Barbara Reynolds says this, the material heavens, i.e. the spheres, planets, and stars were produced by a union between the pure act, which is the state of being of the angels, and pure potency, which is the state of being of primal matter. I won't go into that now because to go into that would mean that I fully understand it. So we'll just leave it there. I just like the phrase, Withy to withy, this shall never be unwithied. Okay. So her second, so what she's saying in that first point is dimmer because you put yourself into it. And once you put yourself into it, you can't get yourself out of it. And it's, but it's just a necessary evil of defending a doctrine is that you kind of put your own view on it. Number two, she says this, you have been obliged to lend imaginative sympathy to the arguments on the other side. Well, so you have. And in playwriting, this is the biggest asset of all because it enables you to make the bad characters real people and not near Aunt Sally's. I don't know what Aunt Sally's are. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure Lewis got caught the reference. And I remember going to a, a conference one time where a guy was talking about the Dostoevsky principle. I thought it was a great idea. Um, the Dostoevsky, when he was um, writing about the atheist in Brothers Karamazov, he wrote him, Dostoevsky himself was not an atheist, but he wrote that perspective so well and as compellingly as he could that it was kind of hard to tell where Dostoevsky stood uh, from just from that reading. And that that's that's great, actually. That That is a principle that we all need to follow when we are writing about a debate. We need to give so much credence and so much uh, strength to the other side and give the, their best arguments 
so that when ideally their best arguments are defeated, um, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate victory. I don't know if I wanted to go the military route, but, but that's where I went. Okay. So, um, third point, she says about things getting dimmer, you are tired. Having united yourself with the doctrine, you hope fruitfully, you are worried by its plaintive cry, but do you still love me? Reassure it courteously and go to sleep. I think any professional writer will tell you the same. The first reaction to anything you have just finished is exhaustion and disgust, which transfers itself from the work to the whole subject. It is in this mood that one passes the most flagrant errors in proof, because one can hardly bear to look at the thing. The cure is time, change, and a resolution not to return to one's vomit. Let be. I will now stop writing letters. Yours very sincerely, Dorothy L. Sayers. And we're going to stop reading letters um, here, but just kind of as a brief overview, some questions that we could get out of this particular exchange is, what is a lie in a work of art? What is creative imagination or uh, imaginative intellect versus um, kind of uh, tangible, maybe mystical experience? And also, what is it to defend a doctrine? What, what costs come with that to the person, even if the person defends a doctrine? Uh, so anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, particular um, overview. It's not an overview. This kind of dive in deep, actually, it's the opposite overview of um, Sayers' letters. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. I'm very excited to have you with me on this journey about learning about Sayers. And if you'd like to learn more about my writing about Dorothy L. Sayers, you can find it at www.lindsayandshoal.com. There's a lot of other things there, including a series about virtues from the Muppets, but we won't go into that. I'd love to hear from you. If there's any way to share or comment or discuss, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks and pox fobiscum. Peace be with you.